Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. How do we write policies that give users control of their data, which in some ways control some of their experience online? How do you use transparency to engage and inform the public, advertisers, but also, of course, researchers, civil society, so they can be this additional check on this whole system? And then how do we use competition reform to basically bring more people into the ecosystem and compete on things like privacy, transparency, safety? If Congress could could reach this goal of passing these three big areas of policy, it actually would open up the space for more people to be checks and balances on each other. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong Whaley, and joining me this episode is Anna Lenhart, a policy fellow at the Institute for Data, Democracy, and Politics at George Washington University. Her research focuses on public engagement in tech policy and the intersections of privacy, transparency, and competition. She most recently served in the House of Representatives as the senior technology legislative aide to Representative Lori Trahan and as a Congressional Innovation Fellow for the House Judiciary Digital Markets Investigation. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Generative AI is getting its moment. um, And as tools are more available to the public, and they're getting greater media attention in this moment, um, especially with an emphasis on issues of privacy and transparency, um, I wonder if you could start by giving us an overview of how you view challenges that AI poses to privacy. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, when we're thinking about privacy kind of narrowly, like the protection of personal information, that's actually a pretty narrow subset of the harms we're talking about here. But but they are there and there are two areas that I think about in that space. So the first is the amount of personal data that may be in the training set for generative AI. So this could be anything from a baby photo that was scraped from your family member's Facebook page. Uh, a post you put on a Reddit forum about your story of recovery, maybe from an eating disorder that you thought was only going to be read by young women on that forum. Um, you know, sometimes this is very personal information. We also, to your point about transparency, don't always know what's in these training sets. Um, I think we're assuming it's sort of publicly available data, but um, they do use the word um, licensed sometimes, <laughs> which can make you maybe think that they're using data brokers as well. Um, but Regardless, there's some sensitive stuff in these training sets. You wouldn't necessarily know when this data would come out or emerge or like what prompt may disclose that info, but it is in there. Um, The more concerning, I think, privacy challenge is the profile that can be created about a user based on their prompt. So very similar to the way a search engine works. Search engines are also AI. Um, You know, if you pull up Dali and enter a set of prompts for images you would like generated, that history tells a story about you and can be used in for emotions sexual preferences, state of mind, you know, quite invasive, but information that's valuable to advertisers, insurance companies, et cetera. Again, we've been seeing these challenges for a while, but they're, but they're certainly here in this technology as well. But, you know, I also want to broaden out beyond kind of personal data protection to the bigger picture of harms that come from processing this data. So for one, the corpus or our body of information used to train these systems represents the internet from the last few decades. 
meaning the inequalities present in today's world are encoded into these systems. So say you ask the chatbot to generate a bedtime story. It might have a father character that's an engineer. Uh, the servant might be des described as dark-skinned. Um, the transgender character may be described as a groomer. You could have these dangerous narratives um, just continuing to perpetuate through these systems. The other harm I'm thinking about a lot is manipulation. Both the ability to create incredibly convincing but untrue images and text, but also the ability for the chatbot to feel like a companion. And look, we can <laughs> have this whole debate around like, is it thinking? No. Is it just predicting the next word? Yes. But it feels like a companion to me. And that's enough, I think, for us to, to be concerned, even right. Um, and why is that so scary? Because it can lead people to, to separate or become disengaged from their community, from politics, from institutions. And, and we can dive into that a little bit more. Yes, thank you so much for that really great overview. And, and I hope that we can get into it a little bit more. And we, we are specifically kind of focusing a series on how AI is already impacting politics and how it will, you know, with both the potential for harm and, and the benefits. Um, you know, I'm increasingly concerned about the the potential downsides, um, especially as we think about the ability to generate deep fakes, malinformation at large scale. Um, but we've previously on the podcast have folks talk about the positives where we could, you know, create uh, opportunities for greater interactions that could lead to, um, you know, positive interactions between uh, politicians or elected leaders and their constituents. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you see generative AI specifically impacting policy and decision making. Yeah. So for me, it actually goes back to the information environment. So, you know, one thing I saw working in Congress in both a committee setting and then also in a personal office is just how important the independent press is, both for their investigation work, which often led to some of the most important policies I, I worked on. Um, but also just in the way they're ongoingly covering what's happening. And that could be everything from like local school board <laughs> stuff that was happening in the district to, you know, the negotiations that were happening in real time in Congress uh, to, you know, what the president was up to at a G7 meeting. All of this was essential for informing me as a policy aide, um, everyone I worked with, and then also the public at large. And so this is true during a campaign season, but also during operations, key negotiations. So, of course, I'm I'm worried about false and misleading content. That's not new. We've, we've always been concerned about that. It's been a growing concern. The challenge with generative AI tools is that they're incredibly convincing. Um, you know, the voice generators alone have been just in incredibly, you know, there's been such mass improvement over the last four or five years. Um, and so it's much easier to create this sort of convincingly misleading content at scale, both by accident and on purpose. Right, so you're going to have your malicious actors potentially using it, but also it's going to be so hard for users to detect in some cases that you could have people really genuinely trying to spread um, important information and inform their community about things, accidentally sharing false info. Um, and so really concerned about that. But I'm also actually almost more concerned of the situation where a policymaker really does endorse a bad policy or say something blatantly racist on the House floor. Um, or a video pops up of them um, molesting a woman or something of that nature. And instead of having to respond or apologize, they can simply say it wasn't real. It was AI. That is almost more horrifying because I've really seen the what it 
can do when a, when a member of Congress does have to respond to information that um, the press got a hold of and the way it really changes their thinking um, and can push their decision making. So it, it is really important. We're properly covering these important decision makers. Um, and, you know, it, it really comes back to just like the need to, for community. You know, I think teachers, librarians, local sources of information are going to become even more important um, as we move into this, this space. So you have put together um, an incredibly useful document and um, and a study uh, looking at the way that Congress is addressing AI uh, is addressing AI through legislative proposals. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you have found both by pulling together all the different pieces of legislation and also analyzing it um, about about the way in which Congress is grappling grappling with regulating AI. Yeah, thanks so much. So I think it's helpful to to know why I made the list. Um, it started when the New York Times published an article, not an op-ed, an article in early March of this year, and they said that Congress had yet to propose legislation to protect individuals or thwart the development of AI's potentially dangerous aspects. That's just not true. And at first, I was a little bit offended because, like, I worked on these bills and I was like, no, we have. Um, but putting past my, you know, my, my personal career and ego, no, I just think it's actually a dangerous narrative. Um, because it pushes this idea that Congress is not ready. They don't understand this technology. So they certainly should not regulate it. Um, you know, there's even been this narrative that more people need to go computer science degrees. Um, look, Congress has been, regulating innovative technologies for a very long time um, without aerospace engineers, without automotive engineers. Um, you, they need to understand the problems really deeply. And what I was trying to do when I put the list together and I kind of put it in the bucket was to show that they are studying the harms, uh, especially the members on the Commerce Committee and Judiciary Committee who have been deeply grappling with privacy issues, with manipulation, with discriminatory data use with monopoly power in the digital market. Um, all of the concerns we're talking about when we talk about generative AI, they have been thinking about those. And so that was, that was really my starting point was to show that Congress is not actually at square one. Yes, I do think generative AI opens up some, some more questions we should look at and we should definitely talk about that. Um, but they're not at square one. They have been talking about these harms, um, especially amplification of sample content, the one, you know, we're, we're really diving into here. Um, the need for risk assessment and audits. It's, it's really in there when you look deeply. So I think that's my high level takeaway. Um, and then, you know, I, I did dive into some definitions pretty deeply and sort of highlight some, some areas that are murky. But, you know, even, even areas where definitions get murky, that happens all the time in policy too. You know, if you look at medical device bills that were written in the nineties, you know, some of them are murky right now. We're trying to figure out, okay, when AI is in a medical device, do we need to switch these definitions? But the difference is we're working with the FDA and the framework they have to get those definitions fixed. And so we have to pass all bills. <laughs> we have to pass some of these bills to even create the regulatory environment. As new technologies come on, we can spruce up the definition. And so a lot of my analysis saying, look, Congress is not square one. Yes, I'm going to point out some areas where the definitions are a little murky because of this technology. And, you know, Congress should maybe look into that this Congress. But look, even if these bills had passed last Congress, um, not all of them. I do not endorse all the bills on the list. I should maybe uh, should maybe start with that up top. 
Um, but the ones that are well-researched and um, do need to go through the full process of markups and, you know, committee hearings. But those bills, you know, if they had passed, we'd have tools and regulators would have tools that they could use right now and they'd be able to give clarity where needed. Because we sort of center our analysis around politics. I did look at who's sponsoring the legislation. Um, and, you know, there, there is actually pretty broad bipartisan support in a number of the buckets that you looked at, with the exception of sort of creating a new agency. There, there is no Republican support for building a new agency around this. Um, although, again, there, you know, it does seem important that, that there's got to be a clear line of authority and some sort of central organizing um, agency to make sure, you know, to, to focus on the implementation side of things and the enforcement side, um, you know, based on your assessment of all the different legislative proposals, um, how well do you think, um, legislation can really address, um, the, the issues around exacerbating biases and discrimination as well as privacy and transparency? Yeah. I mean, look, these are, complex systems um, that operate in like an economy and a society and state of processing and discrimination. Um, they're wicked, what we would call wicked problems in, in the policy space. Um, and so it's helpful to just sort of understand that, you know, there are going to be things that companies need to do, that the education sector needs to do, um, that, you know, community organizations need to work on. And then there's going to be a role for legislation. And it's also helpful to understand that there will not be one new law that addresses all of the concerns. Uh, from, and most will probably require a different approach. There's also laws already on the books that could be either used or maybe updated. So there's all there's, there's a bunch of different approaches. I think it's really important that bills are not written for generative AI specifically. So this is the other thing I really tried to point out in my analysis is the 30-ish bills on that list, none of them define generative AI. Instead, they define covered data covered platforms, automated decision systems. These are nice, broad definitions. And there's a reason for that because the bills are focused on the harm, right? So if we're concerned about the proliferation of um, misleading content or, or dangerous content on a platform, whether it's made by a generative AI tool or by Photoshop shouldn't really actually matter that much. It's just the fact that it's on there. And how are we going to address that? And so that's where you look at bills like the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act, the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, right? These bills that are trying to get social media companies to think about what policies they're going to have in place to address harmful content and to offer both, both the public and researchers access to study the way information is moving to the information environment. Again, studying content that was created with generative AI, but also other content that maybe wasn't, or maybe even that journalist that accidentally covered something that was made by generative AI and then said it was true because they didn't understand that it, it wasn't, right? The whole information e e ecosystem. If they went ahead and wrote a bill that was just looking at generative AI on a platform, that would be too narrow and wouldn't actually address the harms we care about. So that's just, that's just one example. I could do that with every bill on that list. Um, you want these to be broader definitions. Um, and I really do think that, that this list of near-term harms we're talking about um, if you look at the proposals from the 117th Congress that I analyzed, um, look, they need they need markups. <laughs> they could always be improved, uh, especially the bipartisan ones. There's a lot of the nature of the bipartisan. There was a lot of negotiations that went in, so they're not necessarily the bill I would have written single-handedly. There was a lot involved in them. But they really do point towards these problems, and they do show that Congress is moving in this direction. Um, you know, the American Data Privacy Protection Act 
historic bipartisan bill bounds put bounds on discriminati- discriminatory processing of data. That's that's huge. That's huge for a lot of systems, including generative AI. Um, I already mentioned the Digital Services Oversight and Safety Act. It put a range of disclosures aimed at understanding the social how social media companies are handling all types of content and allow researchers to see this as well. The Ending Platform Monopolies Act would give antitrust enforcers the ability to structurally separate business lines that have conflict of interest. And that's, that's kind of a broad definition right there, but that would also cover a company that could not only not only have all the compute power needed to build generative AI tools, but also competes against smaller companies that are renting that compute power. You know, the big concern we see here. So while the bill is not written for that instance, it's written in this broad way that would cover it. That's what we need Congress to do. And like you said, the agency that they give this authority to is going to be key and ongoingly sort of offering guidance, maybe updating definitions, or even coming back to Congress and saying, hey, we need you to pass this one-page bill to clarify something for us. Look, it's a lot easier to pass a one-page bill, clarify something in an existing statute, than passing a whole new 140-page bill. So, um, so, so overall, this idea of like Congress should, you know, not, should, should be cautious and not write something knowing that the definitions might have to be updated. Like, no, that's, that's just the nature of We've started to talk a little bit about some of the short and medium term consequences and harms. You know, what do you foresee as sort of ongoing consequences of AI that policymakers ought to be concerned with now um, and and thinking about as they develop some develop their regulatory frameworks? Yeah, I think there's a few things. Um, So, again, like just very, very short term, we have to get the other members that are not on Judiciary and Commerce Committee more engaged, more involved so that these bills can get a path forward. We need leadership in the House and Senate to care about these existing bills. So that's like very short term. Um, some additional sort of short term things that are not quite in the existing set of bills that that could be pushed a little further. Um, the Algorithmic Accountability Act, which is an incredibly well-researched bill that mandates that automated decision systems uh, working with critical decisions. So any decision around hiring, healthcare, things like that would have to do these deep impact assessments ongoingly that include really looking deeply at the training data. Um, I think there's a world in which maybe you can make some of that public. I think there's a world where you could even um, mandate pieces are audited or that researchers maybe get access. So I think there's some spaces to even push um, some of the ideas that are already in Congress forward. But what are some other things they should be thinking about specific to gender AI? So the one I'm really grappling with and have been for a while is this idea of public data. Um, we're seeing all these young people become teenagers right now, and they're realizing how much of their data is online and quote unquote public, including, you know, their baby photos, but also like their story of their first period that their mom shared in like a family forum, right? Like their story of the time they got in a fight with a friend on a soccer field, right? They had no say in this stuff getting posted to the Reddit forum or to the mommy blog. And it's there and it's it's scraped. It's in these systems. Um, I just need to have a real conversation. And look, public data is very important. It's incredibly important to journalism. I'm not suggesting that we lock it all down. I'm really not. Um, but I think there's we need to have a really nuanced conversation around um, the bounds potentially on some of this. That, that's something I'm thinking about. I hope others start to think about as well. The other really big thing is multilateral agreements, international frameworks. Um, these data sets 
do not have jurisdiction, right? So I spent most of my 20s traveling <laughs> around. I have pictures of me with people in Namibia, people in Germany. They are on my Facebook photos. This, these data sets aren't bound to, to country jurisdiction. Um, they're all in there. We're all impacted. There are cultural norms that, that vary what is sensitive. Sensitive data in one country might be different than sensitive data in another. We need to be having global conversations around this. Um, and then also the technology doesn't have bounds, right? It's being used across um, the globe as well. And we're already seeing challenges with the fact that Europe has a comprehensive privacy law and we don't and what's, what that's meant for data flows. I think this gets even trickier when you add on um, some of the provisions of the Digital Services Act and some of the provisions of the Digital Markets Act in Europe, um, which, again, is going to impact this whole ecosystem, the AI Act for sure as well. Um, we just we have to get to the table and, and not just we, the United States, but we also need to think about how we're going to bring in people from South America, from African nations. Um, it, this is just this is big impact. I so again here like what you're raising there there's there's like again concerns about how these tools how specific, how tools and data are really going to exacerbate um existing inequities in our system right and so people who might be more educated or more in tune with understanding the harmful effects can go scrub their data make sure their kids aren't online right and so it's sort of like a double whammy to me in a lot of ways for historically marginalized communities or people with lower access to um, technology or information or, or just like even the time and to, to, to take <laughs> to really um, understand how the technology and how sharing their information online can, can harm them and the ways that it can then be used to target them and really um, in ways that will that will be harmful, right? So whether it's whether that's by a company, I mean, do do we ever get over that sort of double double whammy of inequality? Only if we make that what we want to optimize for, right? I mean, that's the simple answer, you know. And, and if this technology goes unregulated, like I will tell you what it'll optimize for: it'll optimize for shareholder value. Um, and so. This this is the question, right? Are we going to put the guardrails on to steer this technology or any any of this data processing, any of these technologies, in the the goals that we actually want as a society? Um, and you know, I just spent three years in Congress working on historic bipartisan bicameral legislation that didn't make it to the president's desk. Um, this is this is tough. It's hard. It's gonna. I'm gonna keep looking at Congress because that's my my expertise, but it. That might not work. That might not do it. And we, we're going to have to look all around to get in this direction. Yeah. The, I mean, the executive branch has also weighed in on AI. And um, so actually, the Trump administration issued an executive order in December of 2020, you know, that kind of would advance the adaptation and role of um, AI and government services. <laughs> um, the Biden administration has put out um, a code of ethics, I guess, if you will, or, or sort of a, it's put out a code of ethics around the use of, of AI. Um, at the same time, I wonder, you know, to what extent or what concerns do you have about like who regulates the regulators? Um, and so like who, who's going to make sure that government is also, 
um, appropriately adopting and and not using data, especially given the levels of hyperpartisanship and polarization that we have um, and the distrust that Americans have in government, especially depending on who controls um, the branches of government. Do you have concerns about how, how government might be using the technologies and data? And, and how, how can we regulate the government uses? Look, I, I, I do. I do have concerns around government surveillance in general, big picture, for sure. Um, but I'll go ahead and put that aside for a moment. That's like a whole other podcast. But in terms of AI, I kind of laugh actually a little bit as someone who worked on automated decision systems in the government. Look, there are so many processes in the government right now that just need like if then statement level automation. I mean, really, if you talk to people who are working with data systems in the government, that is what they'll tell you. Like, just give us a CRM that works. (laughs) You know, give us something that we can use to manage processes, um, to do casework more effectively. Um, You know, maybe a logistic regression is helpful in some cases. We built some of those. But like, I I laugh when I think about, what are we really going to be growing neural nets? Um, maybe, right? I'm sure there are people, there are techno-solutionists everywhere, including in government agencies, who, who are maybe going to try to find a problem that they can can use the generative AI hammer for. But I think if you talk to most people really, really trying to improve government services, which is more of my expertise, um, I, I'm not really, I won't really speak to defense and those, it's a little different story and not my expertise. Um, but public services, that's not what they want. They want like basic automation systems. Um, but no, look, government surveillance is a concern. I mean, I think bigger picture to your question, I I think this is why I'm so passionate about the intersection of privacy, transparency, and competition, because the truth is, especially anything that's impacting our information ecosystem, which generative AI certainly will, you don't want just the government overseeing that. You really, really don't. I mean, that's how you lose the free press. Um, and, and the ability to speak and to critique your government, right? You, you want separations here. Um, but you also don't want like three or four companies dictating the information ecosystem. And so that's why I worked really hard on thinking about how do we write policies that give users control of their data, which in some ways controls some of their experience online. How do you use transparency to engage and inform the public advertisers um, but also, of course, researchers, civil society, so they can be this additional check on this whole system. And then how do we use competition reform to to basically bring more people into the ecosystem and compete on things like privacy, transparency, safety? Um, so so I do deeply think about like what does it mean for, for the government to have too much power over any of these systems? And I think actually, if Congress could could reach this goal of passing these three big areas of policy, it actually would open up the space for more people to be checks and balances on each other. And, and auditors, too, I, I didn't throw them in either, either but, um, you know, the auditing bodies can, can create another space as well. Well, Anna Lenhart, I want to just thank you so much for your expertise, for your public service and actually working on bipartisan legislation, um, even if it's not yet passed. <laughs> Um, and and then your ongoing your your ongoing critical evaluation and and contributions to helping us not only understand the issue, um, but to engage an informed public on these issues and to really move the legislative needle forward. So thank you so much, listeners. You can find a link to Anna's new report in the episode notes. Thank you so much. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics Is Everything. 
Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Fays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number Four Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.